Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. In this day and age, you can find just about any kind of information on the Internet, no matter how far-fetched. And truth can oftentimes be stranger than fiction. With that in mind, BBC TV host, producer, and author Dan Schreiber is out with a new book, The Theory of Everything Else, A Voyage into the World of the Weird. I recently talked to Schreiber about his book and its origin. Well, I'm as for a day job in the UK, I'm a professional fact hunter. And what I look for specifically is interesting and funny facts, stuff that makes you look at the world a bit differently, gives you a bit of a chuckle, and then lets you sit at a dinner table and tell it to other people and spark off interesting conversation. That's the sort of idea behind what I do generally. And as the years have gone by, I've always had an interest in people who look at the world differently and the sort of worlds of paranormal and occult and all that sort of stuff, because during all the sort of decades of research I've been doing, I can't, I couldn't help but notice that there were just so many pivotal people from history who changed the world, but also harbored these little bits of weirdness as part of their thinking. And it just occurred to me that whenever you read a story about these people, that was sort of swept under the carpet. And I think that's because these days when you have a belief that maybe UFOs are visiting or that you saw a ghost or something. It's almost a career ender because it's so connected these days to conspiracy theory and, and dangerous dark stuff. But actually, all that stuff, if you remove going into the dangerous area, there's so much left for us to just enjoy, like we did as kids around the campfire. And I just want people to know that, yes, you know, Marconi, who invented radio, I mean, the reason we're able to chat to each other now, this guy, an absolute genius, Yes, he did this incredible thing, but he also believed, he had his own theory, that sound never died. So sound just gets softer and softer and softer, but it's still here, which means every single sound, every single sentence that's ever been uttered, it's still somewhere on Earth that can be found. And he wanted to invent a machine that could detect sounds that were so soft that he could find them from any bit of history. So he wanted to find Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That was his dream to invent oh my something. Gosh. And then I guess that didn't really serve a podcast or whatever. <laughs> but that's that's sort of a beautiful thing where you go, wow, how come people don't talk about Marconi's big idea more so? It's just the it's just the headline stuff. So the idea behind the book was to take big themes that we all know from UFOs to people who are trying to communicate with animals to telepathy to ghosts and all that stuff but find the most interesting untold stories of people in history who believed in it and also how they've impacted the world in positive ways. Sure. Well, just looking through here, I noticed that one of the, one of the folks that you featured in the book is actually this Nobel Prize winning inventor that, that, that invented the PCR test, but he's got some pretty other strange beliefs as well. well this is <laughs> yeah when i to be honest when i was writing the book that was the one headliner that i thought well hang on this is the perfect example because i i started writing the book in covid times and pcr i mean maybe we're, we'll get a bit forgetful <laughs> as time goes on but pcr really saved us it really helped curb the disease and everyone who was able to take this test was able to stay home and make sure that the spread didn't happen and you know, that PCR generally, I, I had no idea up until the pandemic what PCR was, but it, mm -hmm. it's changed the world. This invention means that when police do forensics, it is such an impressive percentage of correctness now as a result of PCR. And archaeological digs, they're able to name whose bones are in the ground in a way they've never done before because of PCR. So incredible. And then it helps us in the pandemic. Yeah. 
And so you think, okay, who invented it? You find out it's a guy called Carrie Mullis, Nobel Prize winner for it. Well, why don't we know his name? Surely this should be a household name. He's a hero. But it turns out that the same year that he invented PCR, he also claimed that he was abducted by a talking, glowing raccoon who took him to a spaceship and kept him for hours. And he spent the rest of his life trying to prove that he was stolen by a glowing raccoon. I mean, it's it's mad, but that's the kind of beauty of the bananas brain and the genius brain meeting together. And, you know, that's what I'm interested in, because when he invented PCR and he was, you know, he did it as a single person. It wasn't a uh -huh. big team. He took it to his team and he said, I've got this idea. And they said, it's crazy. That's not going to work. Don't just drop it. Don't do it. And he plugged on and plugged on. So I think that same bit of madness that made him want to find the glowing talking raccoon is the same thing that said, no, don't give up on this. Let's find PCR. And he did it. Yeah. Well, it must have made an impression. It looks like it's the cover of the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is in the uh, in the British edition. There's a, there's a very cool new looking American edition cover, which looks more oh, like okay. a Eric Von Daniken style book. Yeah. Uh, which, is, okay. which is very nice. But yeah, I mean. That did, that did, because also you just never hear about English-speaking raccoons. I've never, you know, outside of Guardians of the Galaxy. That's not a thing. He won the Nobel Prize. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous that that's not a headline we all know. Yeah. So how, how heavily does the paranormal factor into all this weird stuff that you have unearthed? I, the paranormal, yeah, it's such an interesting thing, because the paranormal stuff is more interesting when you look at how it's influenced the world today and the people who believed it. I mean, one of the most fascinating things that I found out in the course of the research was that Arthur Conan Doyle, who on a sort of bananas level is like a number 10. He's right at the top. He's, he's just, he's kooky as hell. And it's really endearing and really interesting, but he was a big ghost hunter and he believed in all the afterlife and stuff. And it was this amazing fact that in, in London, one of the most iconic venues that you could ever go to here is called the Royal Albert Hall. Absolutely beautiful. Lots of proms and orchestras play there all the time. And he headlined the Royal Albert Hall. But what was fascinating, 10,000 people came and they came to watch him headline. He was, he was on the bill to headline this gig, despite the fact that he died six days before. And what it was was, his family had booked a medium who was going to bring him on stage to sort of say, hey, from the other side, after a big sort of little memorial for him that was going on inside. And 10,000 people came to see him, to see the ghost and spirit of Arthur Conan Doyle. And <laughs> it's just when you think about that as a, as a genuine thing, like that, that really happened. That's not a story. You just think, God, this is, this is fascinating how much people are willing to jump on board with an idea like this. And so then you start looking into the world of paranormal when it comes to authors, which is where this led me down. Mm -hmm. And there's amazing things like Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Mis. He uh -huh. only finished writing Les Mis because it was a big, bulky book that he wasn't able to properly get his head around, and he thought it was too big. He only finished writing it because he was doing table tapping, which is a kind of seance-like thing where you have a table tap out numbers and so on. He was doing one of those sessions, and a spirit from the other side said, hey, Hugo, the Les Mis book you're writing, it's really good. You've got to finish that. But it's too hard. No, go on. It's going to be great. That's the only reason he finished it. A spirit from the other side told him to do it. Um, he, he and his son took down dictation of a lost Shakespeare play. There's a lost Shakespeare play that has been written by Victor Hugo and his son. I mean, so you, you just think, 
we wouldn't have Les Mis unless some spirit told him from the other side to do that. And in America, there was also a series of court cases that almost happened because a lot of people started penning. This was during the big spiritualism movement. Uh-huh. A lot of people were getting in contact with dead authors on the other side, and they were taking new pieces, new works from them. So Mark Twain supposedly dictated a book from the other side uh, to um, <laughs> to this lady in, in, I think it was New York. And it uh, almost I... went to court. And one of the things that was going to happen was they were going to call the spirit of Mark Twain to testify <laughs> in the court case. I think I remember that, <laughs> that one. <laughs> I... Oh, gosh. I, I get the pleasure of, of talking with a lot but here, of... But here's the craziest thing about sure. that story. It's such a shame that that story didn't happen. What's incredible is that had it gone to court and then had Mark Twain had shown up in order to testify that, yes, he in fact was the author, the publishers were then going to say, well, there's a problem, Samuel Clemens, because that's your real name. We own the trademark to your name, Mark Twain, the pen name. So you're, you, as a ghost, aren't even allowed to pen Mark Twain books from the other side. They've got to be under Samuel Clemens. You don't own that name. It's the, it's the greatest court case that never happened. All the elements oh. are there to, to play out. Oh, good Lord. I, I, I get the privilege of talking with a lot of authors and reading a lot of books. So I've got to say, yours is one of the very few that starts with a disclaimer and a warning about the contents. <laughs> So yeah, I don't believe any of it. <laughs> yeah, I guess I understand why. Oh, it's no. just no, no, no. I, I understand. I understand why I say obviously because you know, I, you, who knows how folks will will re, will react to these to these stories. Oh, were were any of them that you researched just too bizarre to put into print, or did everything go in the book? Um, <laughs> No, no, there were, I mean, I, I stayed away from all the kind of conspiracy stuff. I'm not into things where it suddenly then uh, has a big message that you, know, you get into a lot of anti-Semitism, you get into a lot of very dark territories when you're writing about this kind of stuff. And this was this was a book about the lighter side of all this stuff, as I say, almost like huh. the um, the campfire thing. And the, and the disclaimer at the top of the book is just to say these ideas, are they're almost like a magic eye. You, you're staring at a magic eye for ages, trying to understand someone else's worldview. Why, how can you believe in ghosts? How can you believe in, in synchronicity, meaningful coincidences, and so on? And, and then suddenly, when the right story, and I hope that's what this book is, comes along, it just gives you that little moment where the magic eye works, and you're suddenly in this world, and you can see it, and you get it, and it looks amazing, and it makes you a bit excited and goosebumpy. But then, blink, and you're back out, and you're back into your world, and that's where you should be, because... You don't want to get stuck in the magic eye. It's it, that isn't the world for you. And so it's a it's a little tour. I kind of call it like a wine tasting tour for theories. You know, <laughs> you know, have a sip, swivel it around, sure. but spit it back out. You get drunk on these ideas, and they're dangerous if you're if you truly believe them. I, I was going to ask you is is there one of these theories that you came across that that you were really tempted to drink the Kool Aid on? Um, I there yeah there are a few coincidences that are so enjoyable that it does give you a sense that maybe things were meant to be this way. There's a, you know the sense of fate that that perhaps this person was meant to be here at this time for history to play out. And so you know there's examples where like Sully Sullenberger, you know the the a Miracle on the Hudson pilot sure. where. He, I'm pretty sure, is a fairly rational guy. I, I know that Katie Couric, when she was interviewing him, said, "Did you 
did you pray to God as you were going down? And he said, said uh, no, I'm pretty sure everyone behind me was doing that. I focused on landing the plane. And I thought that was a really <laughs> nice answer where he was sort of saying, don't worry, they had that covered. I'm, I have to do this. But when you listen to him talk about it, he sort of says it's, it is quite odd because everything that I did in my career led up to this moment, basically. It's as, it's as if I needed to be the pilot to bring this to safety in the moment. I used to train against bird strikes. I used to train of how to land a plane on a body of water. I, you know, all this stuff that he was, he was the best guy in the world to be in that situation. And you probably do think, wow, what? What is going on there? And there's a story in the book, which is kind of one of my favorites, I think, of, of all of them, which is, do you remember um, the Ronald Reagan attempted assassination in 1981? Yes, actually. I he do. was yes. coming out of a Washington, yeah, he was coming out of a Washington DC hotel. There was a gunman waiting for him mm -hmm. and he took a couple of shots at him and the secret service very quickly grabbed Ronald Reagan and one guy in particular, Jerry Parr, threw him into the back of the limousine and they sped out of there. And because the bullet kind of went in quick, there was like, it was really odd. There was no blood coming out of him and they kind of patted him down and he thought that perhaps the pain he was experiencing was being quite an old man and being thrown into the back of a limo. So he thought he was just bruised. And so they headed back to the White House and as they were heading back, a bit of blood came out of his mouth. Jerry Pass saw that and went, no, I, you are hit. I don't know how or where, but you are. And he went against all protocol and he had the limousine taken to the closest hospital where doctors were just like not ready for a president to come in. But they did the operation. And had he not have gone, the doctors later said immediately to the hospital, if he was even five minutes later, Ronald Reagan would have died. So Jerry Parr saved his life by going against protocol. And he was hailed a national hero. He was given medals and all that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, that's that's what the story is. And it's normal thing. But the beauty of the story is that the only reason that Jerry Parr was there on that day to save Ronald Reagan's life is because when he was a kid, his dad took him to the cinema to see a movie called Code of the Secret Service. And it was all about the Secret Service members. And he fell in love with it. And he thought, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to protect the president. Um, the actor who played the lead role of the security service guy in that movie was Ronald Reagan. So it's a secular full circle thing. Ronald Reagan basically <laughs> saved his own life. He planted the seed in a kid, and all these years later, this guy ends up saving him. I just those are the stories that I just say, wow, what are the chances? I'm sure they're not real, but that's the one thing that kind of tempts me to drink the Kool-Aid, I'd say. Sure. You know, obviously some of the stories are, are, are way out there, like, you know, having a conversation with a glowing raccoon. But what is what was maybe one of the more stranger, if the <laughs> if there is a stranger tale than that one, uh, that you that you that's, that you came across in in doing the research? Um, well, sometimes because it's it, with a book like this, it's quite hard to quantify what is strange. And sure, what is I understand. <laughs> surprisingly odd, you know, like like for example, it was a really strange thing to find out that Prince Philip, husband of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, that while he was at basically the peak of his power when they were in, you know, he was he was in his 50s and 60s as mm -hmm. prince, um, in Buckingham Palace, he basically ran a secret exiles unit. And he was a subscriber to Flying Saucer Review, which was a magazine that came out here in the UK. They used to deliver this magazine to Buckingham Palace. It's where he'd read it. And he had people on his staff who were actively logging original accounts from RAF pilots the soldier pilots here who 
were claiming that they had UFO encounters. And there was a weird thing where they would invite the RAF members to come to Buckingham Palace to tell their stories, specifically to his second hand, uh, sorry, sorry, his right hand man. And I think Philip would be there from time to time. And the idea was that if they believed their story so much and came to Buckingham Palace and told the story, it must be true because they wouldn't dare lie to a prince. So Philip was effectively a human lie detector and they would come and not buckle and tell the story and they go, well, it must be true. They can't lie to the prince. So that was really bizarre, finding out that Prince Philip had all these weird experiences where, he, you know, his hot summer read of 2019 was a book about a UFO encounter in England. You know, it's, he's, he was obsessed with it his entire life. So you've got bits like that that are really odd. There's other kind of culturally interesting and weird things that really surprised me. Like, for example, the reason that Ringo Starr has a really unique drumming style. And most, you know, if you're listening to any drummer talk about Ringo as a drummer, they always talk about it as such a hard beat to mimic uh -huh. because it's mm -hmm. kind of sloppy. It's a bit slower. It's, it's really interesting. And in studios, people like Dave Grohl would yell out, hey, give me more Ringo when he needed that <laughs> sound more, something that was sure. a bit more relaxed and better. And so the reason is, is because Ringo's a left-handed drummer playing on a right-handed drum kit. And how that ended up happening was because when he was a kid, his grandmother performed multiple exorcisms on him to banish the devil from him so that he would no longer be left-handed. So as a child, she was known as the voodoo queen of Liverpool. She would just do these multiple exorcisms on him, stop him from being left-handed. And for a while, he became right-handed. And when he started learning the drums, he was right-handed. But after he left his grandmother's house, he slowly migrated to being a left-handed drummer again, but he didn't change the kit around. So he still played on a right-hand kit. And as a result, he has to play a bit different and it gives him this little sloppy, little extra tiny bit of time that it takes to get to the rest of the kit. And that's the Ringo beat. That's the Beatles beat. Uh -huh. So we have the Beatles beat purely because of exorcisms from a voodoo granny. <laughs> that stuff I find really amazing. <laughs> Oh, that is really interesting. That's a story I hadn't heard. Um, you may or may not know, George Harrison's sister used to live very close to where, where I'm located here in, in southern Illinois, and she used to tell stories oh, wow. all the time about, about them. In fact, George made his very first visit to the U.S. prior to the Beatles coming. He, was, he visited his sister here in southern Illinois in the late summer and early fall before the, the right before the Beatles came and, and to New York and appeared on that Sullivan show. So I've heard a lot of different stories about the Beatles over the, over the years, but that one I have not heard before. That one is, is, is <laughs> true. Uh, well, uh, truly out there. I'll tell you what, it's, it's, <laughs> it's too, this is too long for me to say on a show like this and it's quite complicated, but there is a chapter in the book, in the book called the exorcism of Ringo Starr. And there's a story in there of when the Beatles got back together to record free as a bird. So uh -huh. Lennon had passed away at this point. Um, there was a tape demo that Yoko Ono gave to them and they recorded it in 94. The three of them got back in the studio and they overdubbed this existing thing. It's a story of how Paul McCartney was convinced that John Lennon was in the studio with them, that he was somehow there and kept saying, make yourself known. And the ending of this story actually is another thing that has slightly pushed me to a near edge of belief, uh, is one of the most extraordinary coincidences and amazing moments I've ever seen it's to do with free as a bird and the ending of free as a bird so check out when we're done with this interview if you want to find an even better we'll beatles story this is like the, <laughs> this is it this is the greatest wow. one wow and now he's experimenting with ai <laughs> using using Lennon's voice yeah so 
Exactly. Yeah. Dan, it's been absolutely fantastic talking with you about the book. What, just kind of come full circle and, and, and wrap this thing up. What do you hope that, obviously a book like this is, I'm sure, partially a labor of love. What do you hope that, that readers take away from these wildly odd facts and theories and things that you've, you've assembled for the book? Well, I just think that, I mean, first and foremost, my big love is comedy and I do stand up comedy and everything that I do has a, uh, as a comedy element to this. And this book as well has a lot of humor in it. And that's kind of the main thing is that I think the world is very confusing. We all get very angry and we also forget how incredible it is that we're alive. We're too busy focusing on the worries of rent or tax or, or, you know, can I get those new shoes? Or like, oh my God, the queue is too long to get to my coffee. All these mundane things make you forget about the extraordinariness of what we're living in. And when you read these stories, I think it kind of hopefully reminds you to look up and just go, what is going on? How are we here? Because there's nothing that gives you a feeling of being alive quite like those moments, something that suggests something more is going on. And I think it's not a it's not a woo-woo book and it's not a it's not a fringe book. It's it's and it's not a scientific book either. It's sort of it's in the middle that just sort of says, hey, here are some great stories that I want you to tell around the dinner table about UFOs and plant intelligence and the weird people who've made the world what it is. And if you've got a weird thing and you think that you should be hiding it under the rug, Stop it. Get it out there now. It's fine. It's good to be weird. It's good to be different. So it's a, you know, it's that, but ultimately it's a silly book. It's just a silly book. That's BBC TV host and author Dan Schreiber. His new book, The Theory of Everything Else, A Voyage into the World of the Weird, is out now. For this edition of In the Author's Voice, I'm Jeff Williams.